we uh, come to uh, the book of Titus today, just to let you know, Al Swanson's home, I knew there was something else I wanted to say, I couldn't remember what it was, Al Swanson's home, and he had a little procedure on his back, uh, the same thing they did before, he had a fractured uh, disc, and so they went in and actually, um, I guess they inject this plastic in there, and it's relieved some of his pain, so he's home now, but um, he's, uh, he's 90, I think, three or four or five, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I know he wants to go home <laughs> to be with the Lord. And so just pray that God's will would be done. And uh, he's, he, he's able to take visitors, and we've been providing some meals for him, the church has. And so if you want to visit, just pray that you call first and talk to Merlin and make sure that they're uh, up and around. But uh, he's doing well, and he, he wanted me to let you know he appreciates your prayers for him and Merlin. Well, as we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, Titus, the book of Titus, uh, it's another one that we'll be going through, and um, today's just basically an introduction to this book, so we're not going to get into a lot of meaty stuff today. We'll start uh, verse by verse next week, uh, but we do have communion at the end of our service today, so uh, pray that God would begin now to prepare your hearts for our communion time together. But as we ponder the book of the letter, really, of, of Titus, Paul to Titus. Uh, when you think of America, I don't know about you, but I think of it as a Christian nation. And you may say, wow, um, really? Yeah, I do. Um, there's been a lot of debate lately whether we want to still have that label. Um, but it was true at the start of our nation anyway. And um, it seems to me that no one would argue that we are still somewhat a Christian nation. And by that, I mean basically we still have the vestiges of American heritage in our Constitution and laws, even though they don't acknowledge that. Um, And so we have the roots there. But I have to tell you, in practice, we are thoroughly a (laughs) pagan nation. We really are. I was driving to church early this morning. I heard on the news that, I think it was in some big city, uh, some kids were playing in an alley and they heard something crying. They thought it was an animal. And it was a uh, three-pound baby, just discarded like a piece of trash. And I'm thinking, who does this? Who gives birth to a human being and decides maybe it's an inconvenience and just dumps it in the trash? At least drop it off at the fire department or the police department. Drop it off at a neighbor's house. Stick it out on the street. Do something with it. But don't put it in the trash. Our country is thoroughly removed from the things of God. T.D. Price said this. Christianity is the least concerned about religion of any of the world faiths. It is primarily concerned about life. Over the past, I don't know, 40, 60 years, there's been a major shift in our country. Just unbelievable. I I remember growing up, you know, watching shows like Leave it to Beaver. I'm not old enough really to, to do the father knows best thing, but some of you are. Uh, Rosie and Harriet, but I remember my three sons. I always liked the intro to that, the little animation they used to do. Uh, I grew up more in the, the, uh, the realms of the Brady Bunch and things like that. I was watching a show the other day that was called Where Are They Now? And it was talking about some of the, uh, the actors from the Brady Bunch. And uh, they were talking about the shared bathroom that the girls had in one of their, uh, in, in their, in their house there in the Brady Bunch. And uh, they were saying how whenever you see a bathroom scene from TV way back then, it was illegal to show the toilet. So then you never saw the toilet. And I thought, boy, how far have we come? I mean, they show the toilet and everything else now. That's the problem. Uh, See, back then, families were where the, the father worked to support the family. The mother usually was a homemaker. The children were all from the same original marriage. And that was normal. That was normal. And now, it almost seems like across 
our land, such families are stra- just um, just statistically almost in the minority. I mean, sexual immorality has always existed. But back then it was kind of shameful. It was kept from public view. Now it's flaunted. Miley Cyrus, do I need to say anything further? It's difficult to find movies that do not assume that sex outside the marriage is acceptable. I mean, back then... In those days, homosexuality was universally regarded as a sinful perversion. Even you can read in psychiatric journals, and they listed it as a deviant condition which needed to be cured. If you were to say such thing today, uh, you'd be called judgmental, be called, probably be arrested. I mean, now we call it gay pride. Even in many churches, they do not regard homosexuality as a sin. To embrace them, they look at it as an alternative lifestyle. And if you dare to call it a sin, you're designated as a right-wing, radical, judgmental, born-again, crazy Christian. I think in our land it will soon become a hate crime to say anything negative about homosexuality. And so when we look at the book of Titus, this little letter that Paul wrote to Titus, overall, as we, we're going to read through the entire letter this morning, it is a letter and it was meant to be read um, in one sitting, so we're going to do that. And you can follow along in your Bibles. But I want you to ask this question. How can we live as God's holy people in such a pagan society? How can we live as God's holy people in such a pagan society, a pagan world, a pagan country? And Paul's short letter to Titus addresses just this problem. Um, you have to understand, sometime after his Roman imprisonment, before his second and final imprisonment, Paul visited Crete, and he visited with Titus. And he left him there to help resolve some of the problems that he saw in these small little struggling churches. And he wanted them to get a kind of a foothold in that pagan culture, because overwhelmingly the odds were against them to succeed as a church. Crete is an island that's about 160 miles long, and it's between 7 and 35 miles wide. It's situated off the southern t- tip of, of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Cretan people, if you know anything about them historically, they uh, acquired a notorious bad reputation in the Roman world. They were just bad people. Uh, Paul cites one in, in, in verse 12, chapter 1, we'll read that. But he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He cites one of their own poets. And as he says that, I don't know if you ever heard of the liar paradox. <laughs> but the liar paradox basically concludes this. If the Cretan making the statement is telling the truth, then he is lying. (laughs) But if he's lying about Cretans, always lying, then Cretans don't always lie. See, Paul kind of used that tongue-in-cheek to to bring to the surface their reputation. Uh, They were such notorious liars that in the Greek language, they coined a word, Credizo, which means to play the Cretan. And it, what it meant is, is kind of like you've heard the word to play the hypocrite. Well, this meant to play the liar. To be Cretan, you were just considered to lie. When you opened your mouth, lies came out. And so you had the seed of the gospel somehow planted and sprouted in this very inhospitable Cretan soil. Cretans had been present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost where they heard the disciples speak in their language of the mighty deeds of God. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. And probably some of these Hellenistic Jews were converted when Peter preached and, and later went 
home to plant churches. But the Gentiles here, who got converted, they brought to the table some baggage. We all do, don't we? I mean, when we're saved, we, do, we, we, we come to Christ as we are. We repent of our sins. We turn from our sins. We trust in a Savior. And then God doesn't say, oh, wait, you're not good enough yet. No. He says, come as you are. I'll make you what you need to be. I'll impute on you the righteousness of Christ because you don't have any righteousness of your own. Amen? And so the Gentiles who got converted, they always brought a lot of baggage with them. And we all do that. We all have baggage. We have emotional baggage, physical baggage. We have all kinds of things going on. People don't even see sometimes. And as verse 11 indicates here, as we read through this, some of these Jews, these Hellenistic Jews, were promoting even false doctrine. Which made for a very difficult situation for the new churches, specifically for Titus. And he had a very incredible track record of dealing with some of these difficult problems Titus did in Corinth. So Paul left him here in Crete to get the church kind of on solid ground, get him some solid footing. And he wrote this letter to him and to the churches, by the way. He wanted it read to the churches to basically give them some instruction on how to be the people of God in such a pagan culture, such a pagan society. And that's what I want to ask ourselves. How do we live as God's holy people in such a pagan culture? He gives us the answer, which is, To be God's people in a pagan culture, we who are saved by God's grace must engage in good deeds under the authority of the local church. To be God's people in a pagan world, beloved, we who are saved, how are we saved? By God's grace, grace alone. We have to, as saved people, be engaged. In good deeds. That by the way God tells us in his word has prepared for us beforehand to do. And we need to do that under the authority of the local church. See some people they'll get saved by God's grace. And they engage in good deeds. But they don't go to any church. (laughs) Ah church is filled with hypocrites. I don't go to church. And the reason they don't go to church is basically because. They have an issue with authority. Especially in a church. Be real frank, that's why some people, they'll go to a church for years. They'll never join a church. They'll never place their membership in the church. Why? They have an issue with authority. Especially in the church. So those three strands of this statement recur throughout the book. One, salvation by grace. We see it over and over again. Number two, good deeds as a result of salvation. Not that you're saved by your good deeds. We're not saying that. But when you are saved, God is at work in you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He's prepared beforehand good works for you to do. And then thirdly, the authority of the local church. Another strong theme throughout the book is one of sound doctrine, especially as it results in godly behavior. Usually, where you find bad doctrine, you find bad behavior. If you dig deep enough, you find bad behavior. You don't have to look too far in the modern-day charismatic movement with all the word of faith and everything, all their, all their words that they're saying. You just scratch the surface. It's built around sensuality. It's built around sexual immorality. It's built around a hunger and a greed for money. Wherever there's bad doctrine, there's bad behavior. So chapter 1, as we read through this, you're going to see it, it, it expresses a need for godly leaders within the local church. Especially their role in refuting false teachers. 
Chapter 2 stresses the importance of various groups within the church practicing good deeds. In their daily lives, not just on Sunday, every day when you go to work, when you go to school, whatever, as a result of their salvation. In other words, letting your light shine before men. Being the light, the salt of the world in which we live. And then chapter 3 focuses on the church's godly behavior in a world as a result of God's grace. See, we can't, we can't be good examples outside of these four walls if we go out there in the flesh and try to do it. Get our little list of to-dos and not-to-dos and, and go out there and try to live some, you know, moral life. We have to live each day, Paul says, by the Spirit of God. He says, be continually filled, right, with the Spirit of God. Continually controlled, Ephesians tell us, tells us, by the Spirit of God. Don't carry out the deeds of the flesh. If you're, if you're controlled by the Spirit of God, you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. Because we live in a fleshly society. We live in a pagan society. And so we need some footing, some, some grounding upon which to live this life that he's called us to live. One thing you're going to notice is the flavor of this book is very practical, but in each chapter there's incredible doctrine incredible doctrine and even though this is one of titus is one of paul's shortest letters that he wrote it contains one of the longest introductions (laughs) basically verses one through four are a single very difficult to to kind of diagram to break up sentence just a run-on sentence And all of the themes that he's going to deal with are found in the first four verses. Summed it right up for us, right out of the the start here. All the themes are are dealt with right there in verses 1 through 4. I mean, maybe Paul intended for the churches to read this letter, not just Titus, because maybe he felt that it was necessary to spend more effort setting forth his own credentials and the nature of God's salvation, because that's what he does. Well, open your Bibles to Titus, and we're going to read through it. It's only going to take five, ten minutes. But I really believe that when we read it in its entirety, that helps us to see the Word of God in its context. So follow along with me. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. 
but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness And loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying's trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I don't know about you, but when you read something like that in its entirety, it just brings right 
into your heart and into your mind what Paul is trying to communicate. And in the coming weeks, as we spend time kind of taking this little section by section and picking apart what we can glean from each part, it's important to understand that this is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus, but don't forget that it is the word of God. It is inerrant. It's divine. And so when we read it, it should, it should cause us to think about things. It caused us to remind us of things. I heard an illustration of a man and a wife who ran up to the pastor after the service and they were all excited and, and they said, oh, we just went through the best weekend. We, we went to this, this special memory course and the seminar showed us how we can use these word associations and all kinds of things, methods, to, to help us with our failing memory. I mean, it was just incredible. You know, you should really think about having something like that at the church. And uh, the pastor listened, and, and his father, or his, his, the, the, uh, his husband was sharing, the, the wife sat there and just kind of nodded, nodded insistently as they described the different workshops and different seminars they attended over the weekend. And finally, the pastor had a chance, and he said, well, what was the, the teacher who led the seminar? What was his name? Maybe I know him. And the husband kind of looked at the pastor, and he finally kind of looked down and began to think, and it, the pastor could tell he's, he's using some of these things that he learned over the weekend to try to remember this man's name. Finally, he, he looked at pastor and he said what, what, what's the uh, what's the name of that flower uh, they're the red and they have little pink petals and thorns pastor kind of said you know, a, a rose yeah yeah rose and he turns to his wife <laughs> and says what was the name of that teachers now i'm sure you've heard that before it's just a silly story but you know what sometimes we need to be reminded of things sometimes our, our, our methods for remembering things, even they fail. Sometimes our methods for trying to live the Christian life the way God called us to live it fails because there are methods, they're not God's. We set up certain rules and we devise certain systems on certain beliefs or practices only to discover in the end nothing works out as it was planned. We've all, after the first of the year, had some big crusade. Oh, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I'm going to have devotions every day. I'm going to do all this. And by week three, we're going, wow, what happened? <laughs> you know, I'm two weeks behind. And we're only in the third week. But see, when the test of truth comes, all strategies, all schemes fail. We need to base our, our strategies and our principles on the truth and designs of God rather than trying to come up with our own. And just as Paul wrote to Timothy before, Paul writes here to another pastor, Titus. And he's outlining the necessity for truth, something that's foreign in our, our modern day society. On occasion, I'll talk to somebody at the coffee house down there where I have coffee every morning and they'll get into a religious conversation. And they'll say, well, you don't really believe that, do you? I said, it's the truth. Oh, I, don't, I can't believe that. My God wouldn't. I said, well, you're not serving the true God. You're making a God up in your own mind to meet your needs. Let's go to God's truth, the Bible. Oh, you read the Bible too. You know, and they, they don't have any semblance of truth. And they don't have any tolerance for somebody that says they know the truth. And so there's a need here for Paul to inform Timothy that, you know what, there's a necessity for truth, number one. There's also a, a necessity for strong biblical leadership. And there's a necessity for Christians to be called to live godly lives. And the essential nature of the church is made up of these believers. See, the problem with the churches today is not the fact that you know what, they're, not, they're using some program that doesn't work. That's not the problem. The problem with a lot of churches is that they've so compromised their standards that they're a church of the world. The world has filled up their church. And so they've got all sorts of problems going on. 
They try to handle them biblically, but the people aren't even open to that, so they kind of rebel, and, and you got all this chaos going on. The church of Christ is to be made up of believers, beloved. That doesn't mean that we don't welcome unbelievers here to worship with us. We do. We always do. And we hope that you, you feel and you see the genuineness of our faith. We hope that you see the glory of Christ. Because he's the only one that can meet your need. We can't. I saw a thing on a sign of a church one time. It said, the church that will meet your needs. <laughs> and I thought, how silly is that? I mean, Christ is the only one that can meet our needs. And Paul calls us to remain faithful to the fundamentals of the faith. We have to understand what they are, to focus on truth and godliness as prescribed by God through Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that, what happens is you become entangled with all kinds of false ideas and false systems. I've heard of pastors dealing with things in their church, and the theology that they deal with is is across the board. It's just a mess. They have, they have all kinds of, they welcome everybody. And so they have people plugged in from all kinds of theological backgrounds and doctrinal misunderstandings, and you wonder why they have problems. We're called to be one in the body of Christ. We're called to come together and focus on our unity in Christ, but we're also called to come together and to study and to teach God's inerrant, inspired word. And to do it in a way that brings him honor, brings him glory. We don't have a corner on the truth. Okay, we all have the same word of God. He's given us this gift. But when you start reading into certain texts what it means and not taking them in their context, I have issues with that. Because that's where you get off on on rabbit trails. And you can make any verse mean what you want it to mean if if you study hard enough and explain it in such a way. So in a nutshell, basically, Paul is establishing his authority as an apostle, one whom God has entrusted the message of salvation and eternal hope. And then he proceeds to outline for Titus the qualifications of officers in the church. And much of what we're going to read in Titus is similar to what the women will be studying as they go through 1 Timothy, even including the warning of false teachers. But let's look just briefly at some just background information. Like I said, we're not going to get into the meat of the the text today. This is just to kind of help us uh, understand what we're dealing with as we go into this. Um, This, first of all, the author of the book, obviously it's Paul. The letter identifies Paul as, first of all, a servant of God, verse 1. Or a slave of God is, is a better way to put that. Uh, sometimes we don't politically correct. We don't want to use the word slave anymore, but that's literally what it means. The fact that he um, became a slave for Christ. Here is someone who was imprisoned for Christ, and yet he was still willing to be a slave for Christ. He's also known not only just as a servant or a slave, but it says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one who is sent by Christ himself. Remember, his conversion on the, on the Damascus road there, on the way to Damascus, when he was converted, Christ literally came down and made a personal appearance just for him. That's why he's an apostle. See, that's why today we don't have apostles in this sense today because jesus isn't popping out of heaven appearing to people last time i checked now you'll hear that but the bible that i read says that our lord is where at the right hand of the father so when you hear somebody claiming apostolic authority be careful Now, we're all sent ones in the general sense, right? We're all followers of Christ. We're all sent out by him. We're all apostles in that general sense. But these apostles had certain miraculous gifts attributed to them. They had the gift of healings. They had the ability to to cast demons out. They had the ability to do all sorts of sign and wonders beyond what the normal disciple would have. And that's what Paul was. He was a slave of God. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
And he was also, verses 12 and 13, let us know that he, he understood his audience. He understood that, that Cretan society. He had done some study about the people that he was trying to reach. Sometimes I think we should take a, a lesson from that, that we should step back. And when we go out and we evangelize, we should understand who we're evangelizing. It does no, no one any good, really, to stand on a corner with a big you know, sandwich board on you, uh, repent or go to hell. I mean, that doesn't do any good. You know, get to know people. Talk to them. Find out what their needs are. Maybe they have, they have issues with their family. Maybe they have issues in their finances. Maybe they have, they're homeless. Who knows what their problems are? But take a few moments, and that's all it takes, to, to, to communicate with them. Don't just... Throw a track in their face and run away. And once you do that, you, you almost establish the right to be heard. They'll dialogue with you. They'll talk about even spiritual things. He was knowledgeable of this Cretan society, and he was also anxious for the return of Christ. I love that in, in verse 13. You can just hear the passion of chapter 2 in his, in his, in his voice waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you excited about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you are. I hope that you're waiting, man. You can't wait. I mean, is today going to be the day? I woke up this morning early. I'm driving over to church and the clouds were just painting this weird picture in the sky. And I thought, whoa, this this would be a cool time to come back. (laughs) Just look kind of, you know, the sun was just coming up. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm anxious for the Lord to return. But you know what? I also know there's a lot of work to be done. And he's left us here to do it. That's the author of the book. Let's look at the recipient. What do we know about Titus? We know from Paul's writings that, first of all, Titus was a convert. He calls him his true son in the faith. So Titus was someone who Paul reached out to And God used him to bring the truth of the gospel to him. Titus came to Christ, and then Paul kind of took him under his wing. He discipled him. He was willing to spend time with him to teach him what he needed to know. He just didn't say, okay, Titus, now you're a Christian here. Go go pastor this church. He didn't do that. No doubt Paul came alongside of Titus, and he taught him all the things that he needed to know. The reason we know that is because he goes on and he talks about the qualifications of leadership. See, a lot of times people come to Christ, they're a new believer, and, and man, they, they just want to go save the whole world. And so they got all this emotion and everything, but they don't, have any, they don't have any context for which all that they believe. They're very shallow doctrinally. And they need to take time and they need to learn to grow in their faith and God will use them. So many times you see people like that you know, they, they go off kind of all emotional and, and they're excited about their faith. And we love to see people excited about their faith. I try to keep those kind of people away from other people in the church who aren't excited about their faith. Because usually the, the contagious thing doesn't work the other, you know, it works from the, the uh, non-excited to the excited, not the other way around. But Titus here was a convert of the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul. But he was also his companion. And we see that in, in, the, in the verses there, Acts and Galatians, at the Jerusalem Council. He supported Paul there. Um, he was also a comfort to Paul. You know, sometimes, you know, people want to come alongside and whatever, but they're not a comfort. We need to be reminded, you know what, we're, we're called to... to Kind of be willing to, to help out and support in different ways. But do it in a comforting way. Don't do it in a threatening way. And then fourthly, he was a confidant of Paul. And if you look at Second um, Corinthians, just real quick, Second Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 
5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by what? By the coming of Titus. And not only was his coming by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was con- comforted by you as he told us of your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. See, Paul, Titus, was a comfort to Paul. He was one of his converts. He was a companion. He was a confidant. You know, it's very uh, clear that, that Paul and Titus had a, a definitely a special kind of a relationship. That's what the Word tells us about Titus. Well, we can infer certain things from Paul's writings about Titus. Probably he was from Antioch or Syria, where all the craziness is going on over there now, um, where Paul began his missionary work. And just a, a quick side note on, on the whole Syria thing. You know, we really need to be praying we, we even read it this morning. We need to be praying for our president. We need to be praying for the Congress concerning this whole mess over there. Um, now more than ever, they need, they need the wisdom of God. And I know that they clearly don't know him, but God sometimes can work and he does work. And we need to lift that man, President Obama, up in prayer and the Congress as well as they sort these things out. But he was probably from that area. He was also a stronger character than Timothy. And what I mean by that is he wasn't as shy. Paul had to come along Timothy and say, hey, don't, you know, don't be shy about some things. Kind of get out there and take, take hold of things. Um, and, and Titus wasn't as shy or withdrawn as, as Timothy. And he was obviously in better physical health than Timothy, just you can kind of uh, come to terms with that when you read through the epistles of Timothy. Paul is kind of instructing Timothy to take some things for his ailments and things like that. But Paul referred to Titus as his son in the faith in Titus one four, his brother in the faith in Second Corinthians two thirteen, and also his partner and his fellow helper in the faith. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, of, of what a blessing that is is when. When, when someone comes along and, and is willing to serve in such a fashion as Titus. It's such an encouragement. I can't even begin to tell you. Sometimes it's, it's not even what people do. It's just having somebody there. <laughs> just having somebody alongside of you. Knowing that, you know what, when things go bad, they have your back. Knowing that they're there to watch out for you and comfort you. See, that's all part of of leadership within a church. That's all part of of what makes up that whole schematic of leadership within a church. It's not a bunch of men getting together trying to figure out what's best for them and and, and battering things back and forth. That's not what it's about. It's not a bunch of men getting together and criticizing each other and criticizing what's going on. No, that's not what it's about. It's, It's about a bunch of men getting together for the spiritual leadership within a church, focusing on Christ and asking God to somehow work through them to, to carry out his, his plan and his purpose for that local congregation. Well, the date and place of this writing of Titus was probably between 62 and 63 A.D. Some say 65, but whatever. And I think that it's, it's kind of, you know, it's about the same time as 1 Timothy after Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment. And the place was either Macedonia or Ephesus, wherever he wrote this letter. Now, coming to the purpose of the book, it's very practical, I think, for us as a church. It's one of the reasons why he chose to go, go through this. Um, one of the first purposes of the book was to urge Titus to set in order the affairs of the churches in Crete. He wanted Titus to make sure that things were, were being done according to the word and things weren't getting out of whack. Secondly, to instruct Titus concerning the character of the men to be ordained. So he's telling Titus, hey, go, go uh, appoint elders. And notice that it says appoint them. It doesn't say vote on them. 
Okay, in our church, we appoint the leadership. The, the current elders appoint those who desire the work of being an elder. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I mean, right now we have basically two elders. <laughs> We're a smaller congregation, but we have two. Bob helps us with the administrative stuff, but he's not an elder yet. People say, well, why don't you have more elders? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can get elders. We can sit down and look at everybody's profile and say, oh, this guy runs a business. He'd make a good elder. Mistake. <laughs> good businessmen don't necessarily make good elders. Or look at this guy and how, how you know, what he, he's always serving. He's always doing this. He's, well, what are the qualifications? We're going to be looking at some of those things. But one of the qualifications is the Bible says that he who desires the work, right, of an elder or an overseer, See, it's not up to the elders to go out and to kind of put it in the hearts of other men. Hey, don't you want to be an elder? Don't you want to be an elder? Hey, we need more elders. We need more elders. Let's, you know, let's just cheerlead them along. No, that calling is a work of God. And trust me, it is a calling. Ask Ken, ask John, ask anybody who's ever served as an elder within a church. They'll tell you it's a calling. It's not a privilege. It's a calling. And we only want people, men, who are called to be elders to serve as elders. It would do nobody any good to have a a board of of eight elders and four of them are called and four of them aren't. You'd have major problems. So the Bible's very clear. It's his church. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. I'll do it at my time frame, not yours. Could we use more elders? Definitely. Definitely. But you know what? That's in God's camp, not ours. But he went over the character of the men to be ordained and to lead the churches of Crete. He wanted Titus not to just go off kind of half-cocked and think, okay, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, I'm going to grab these guys. No. He said there's, there's a certain purpose, there's a certain calling on these men. And then thirdly, he also wanted to challenge Titus to stand firm against the unchristian character of the Cretans. He said, man, you're going to be dealing with a lot of crazy people in the society you live. I I want you to understand that you have to stand firm against that stuff. You can't just allow it in a little bit. And he speaks very boldly about that. One point he says, you know what? If you have somebody within your your body who's being divisive, what does that mean? It means they're, they're taking the word of God and they're using it to divide the body of Christ. And they're doing it in a malicious way. Go to them once, go to them twice, and then you know what? Adios. That's pretty strong. Not a lot of grace there. Not a lot of wiggle room. See, today, the problem with our churches is that, well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody, and so we'll just kind of walk on eggshells. Now, we don't want to offend people just for offensive sake. That's not the purpose either. Fourthly, he wanted to urge Titus to teach sound doctrine. It goes hand in hand to the churches at Crete. If we don't teach sound doctrine, if we just teach messages that constantly tell you how you should be doing things, practical things, how you should be living, how your family should function, how your marriage should function. You know, if we just constantly teach that way topically, We're not going to be able to get a hold of some of these rich doctrines that the Word of God brings out as you go through a book like Ephesians or you go through a book like Titus or you go through a book like Romans. So we believe in teaching through the Word of God because that's kind of the underlying foundation upon which you find out and teach that sound doctrine. And then the last thing there, fifth, to establish for Titus the personal qualities to be built into the lives of the Cretan believers. So that's very practical. See, that's where you get, okay, you're going to call yourself a believer. Well, here's what makes up the life of a believer. Here's how that works. A couple keys in the book. Key thought, order in the church. (laughs) Key phrase, set in order. Key verses, chapter 1, 5, 2, 1, and 3, 1. Several key words. The word good, 11 times. Good work, 6 times. Faith, 5 times. Sound, 5 times. 
And when you look at the general outline, you can just kind of summarize it as chapter 1 deals with great leaders in the church. Chapter 2 deals with good laymen in the church. Chapter 3 deals with godly living in the church, by the church. And so as we begin to look at those different things in the coming weeks together, I pray that you would take this book. I challenge you to read it through every day. It took us, what, five, ten minutes to read it? Read it through every day. You'll know it better than I do. You know, that's what it's about. Don't take what I'm saying. You know, you should be out there being Bereans. You should be studying it. You should be reading it. Become familiar with this little one-page book in your Bible called Titus over the next several weeks. And I'm sure that God will bless our time together as we go on this adventure. All right, well, let's prepare our hearts for our communion time. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning, Lord. I know this is just a general... Uh, introduction to this study, but Lord, I do know that you're, you do want us to understand that you do need great leaders in your church. Father, we need leaders in our church. Lord, we need good members. We need laymen who will, will do the works that you called them to do. We all need to live Lives that are godly before a lost and dying world so that somehow they can see the glory and and majesty of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this morning, if there's any here who has yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, if there's any here who has yet to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, to acknowledge their sin before a holy God, to acknowledge their need, and sometimes that's a humiliating thing to do. I know as men, we don't want to acknowledge needs when we have them. We want to try to work it out on our own, but when it comes to salvation, we can't, and even we read this morning that your grace has appeared to all men. And it's appeared through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we prepare our hearts for this communion time, I pray that we would make sure that there's nothing in our own heart that would bring dishonor to you in any way. That, Father, we would uh, search our hearts and, and if there's confession that needs to be made, your, your word says that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's all because of what Christ did on Calvary. Father, if there's any here who don't know you, I pray that today would be the day that you introduce yourself to them, that you tug at their heart one more time, and that they would respond in faith. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.